This is the Solidarity House live stream. We're live on this beautiful Friday. It really is a beautiful day in Laramie, really at a premium. So we won't take up too much of your time here, about an hour, and then you can go outside and play, hopefully. Uh, anyway, uh, we have uh, Dee Austin uh, with Yana Ludwig today, uh, and Derek and Antifa are going to be talking to Yana and Dee about campaigning, uh, running a socialist campaign, a socialist oriented campaign in Wyoming and what that's like. Uh, and so I'm so thankful to have them on. Before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that this is Solidarity House Cooperative, that you can support us if you like this content on patreon.com slash Solidarity House. And this weekend, in the next few days at least, I don't want to make promises I can't keep, but we are going to be dropping a couple of really, really awesome some podcast episodes that you can find on also on podbean.com. We're also on Spotify and a bunch of other platforms. And one of the segments of that podcast will be this discussion right here. So you might be listening to it that way, uh, even um, as you are hearing my voice now. So without further ado, um, please support us at patreon.com slash Solidarity House. It's great to have Yana and Donatella here. I'm going to turn the time over uh, to Derek and Antifa to ask some questions and have a good conversation about campaigning as a socialist in Wyoming, where I just want to add, uh, Yana won uh, nearly 5,000 votes, came in second in a primary, running a very openly uh, democratic socialist oriented campaign. So lots to say about that. I will leave that to others this morning to talk about. Thanks, everybody. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, it's great to have you here with the Solidarity House Collective and to talk about what it was like uh, running an openly socialist campaign, openly radical. Uh, you live here at Solidarity Collective, Yana, openly uh, trans, radical, queer, friendly, people of color friendly place not things you often associate with Wyoming. But I'd like to start this off by posing kind of a strange question to you. Why the heck not? Uh, <laughs> if Arizona was able to elect a bisexual person to the Senate, red, 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 red Arizona, which flipped in the last election to the blue, if you are worried about Republican Democratic binary politics, which I kind of loathe. But since that happened in Arizona, I want to pose that question. Obviously, that didn't happen until after your election, but did that kind of strike you as a why not? Or did you ever walk into this thinking, wow, this is going to be uh, an experiment in, in self flagellation? I mean, <laughs> or was it more of a let's go, why not this? I mean, I think both. <laughs> I mean, there was definitely, I mean, I don't know how you would get to the point of making the choice that I made uh, to run without having a little bit of that, like, why the hell not kind of attitude about it. And, you know, I think that it was motivated for me a lot by looking around Wyoming politics and realizing that there really wasn't like a body of people who were not just progressive, because we do have other progressives in the state, but somebody else with like a real power analysis and 
it needed to get talked about in Wyoming politics. And so, you know, I think there was that like, you know, like two years ago was right when I was in the process of like first going like, I think I'm going to do this crazy thing. Uh, and, and I think the thing was like, I was sort of bouncing between like the why me and why not me <laughs> polls. Um, yeah. So I definitely think that that was part of it. And there have definitely been aspects of it that have felt a little bit like self-flagellation. So yeah, all of the above. <laughs> Very good. Uh, you know, uh, Dee, if I could talk to you, what out of Yana's many characteristics drew you to her as a candidate at the beginning of all this? Well, what, what we started last year, last yeah, uh, June, June, 2019 was when okay, we, so it's, it's, yeah. it's uh, that was a whole year of campaigning. And mm -hmm. so Donatella, what, uh, what, what brought you to Yana as a Wyoming candidate for Senate? Well, what's really interesting about that is that I had, I think my sibling and my mother had actually gone to see Yana speak. I think in the very early part of her campaign trail, they went to uh, Laramie to hear her. And then, um, so I've just liked her page. Didn't really think much of it. Wasn't really like that involved in the politics on Wyoming because I felt so disappointed a year after year. And then suddenly she had asked if there was a graphic designer. I wasn't doing too much. I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to find out. And I ended up making her bingo card. Walking into the Solidarity Collective, I got a tour, you know, and then suddenly was just like really taken aback by her charisma and how active listening she was and compassionate. And it just took off from there. Okay. Uh, it sounds like Yana exercised one of those key skills that politicians claim to have, which is the ability to listen. I, I don't want to dominate the conversation, um, so I want to hand off to Derek and see if he's got a few preliminary questions before we get a little bit deeper into all of this. Yeah, thank you. I'd love to hear kind of a more chronological narrative, but maybe something uh, I'd like to hear both of your perspectives on beforehand is kind of a dichotomy that I've been having in my mind. Maybe it's what we'd call a false dichotomy, but I'd like your take on it. So a question about running openly as a socialist. It seems on one hand, there's a drive for candidates and politicians to normalize the word socialist by using it as often as possible. Mm. And we see how um, in Bernie Sanders' 2016 election, he greatly reduced the stigma of using that kind of word, um, but also has the potential effect of neutralizing words like that or making it synonymous with welfare or social democracy. And then on the other hand, there's the idea that we should completely avoid scary words like that and focus only on ideas. So what is your take on that perceived dichotomy? And do you think there's any other better options? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the fact that, that the word had been being used to mean so many different things and almost none of them are, were worker ownership and almost none of those people were actually talking about building working class power. And so for me there was a big part of like, I wanna actually be using that word for what it means and be taking the opportunity of having the platform of being a US Senate candidate to actually be doing some broad public education about like, what the hell does this actually mean? And yes, it is sort of um, philosophically aligned with like the government doing more for people. I mean, that part of it, that association makes some sense to me, but that's not actually what the word means. And, you know, I think, there were two other factors for me with running in Wyoming in particular. I mean, one of them was that everybody 
gets labeled a socialist if you don't like them. And so it was like, I was going to get that label no matter what I did, just showing up with a D next to my name. And so it was like, why not actually go yup and kind of take the sting out of it and and do a little bit of like, sort of like turning it around and going like, yes, and let's actually talk about what that really means. And I think the third factor for me is that I just suck at lying. And so I wasn't going to do a very good job of like avoiding the word that I actually feel like is a really accurate description of who I am and my politics and my orientation. And so, you know, when you add all of that up, it was kind of a no brainer for me to just go like, yeah, let's just use the word. Um, but let's like use it for real. And I don't know like how that landed for you, like having me use that word so openly. From like a, a graphic design perspective, it was fascinating because it was like the marketer part of like the campaign. And so like coupling the like the very blatant and open, like, you know, we're socialists, we're here to make that change. And then coupling it with like also, you know, like being very open about the different policies that we were trying to do. I think kind of also took the sting out of it because even when we were getting incredibly negative comments on our posts, they weren't anything of like value or content even like in like the insults and so I think there was something about we had taken out the sting of that and then caused to have just like a deflating of like those comments. I'd kind of like to ask you an interesting question since you were doing marketing and, and graphic design. Uh, Wyoming has a very uh, western cowboy ethos. Anybody who wants to can get the bucking bronco design and how did you feel uh, how did you approach maybe uh, perhaps the campaign uh, narrative from socialism and wedding that with this Wyoming you know independent spirit kind of thing what 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 did you find was a challenge or did you find something that worked for you in bringing those two disparate elements together as a, as a marketer and a, and a graphic designer what was really fascinating about that too is that I'm actually like um, as my like main profession I'm a 3d uh artist and then um I'm a stage technician so like the idea of like combining those to then do a 2D marketing campaign I think for Wyoming what's really fascinating is that we're really on like a graphic design skill really interested in like those new poppy things that like you know regions like Colorado does but want it to be toned down so it was interesting to kind of try to balance between like my very abstract conceptual stuff to kind of put it more down to earth straight to the facts let's make this like brief and if they want to find out more so my ended up being a lot of like text heavy like very like snappy like these are our statements which I think would have been much different if we were even in like in a different state or region so I thought that was really interesting and then the other thing is I kind of steered away from anything super stereotypically Wyoming which I don't know if it was beneficial or detrimental to our campaign but it certainly um there's one where I did like a quilt which ended up going semi-viral and that one was like a little bit of that homey like quilted feeling of like community, but also was very poppy of like, you know, these are the people that we want to support. And so it was interesting to kind of see what was going, like what was um, catching a lot of attention and what was kind of like falling on the wayside. And a lot of it was just, you know, whether or not it looked like it was from Wyoming. Mm -hmm. right. So if I'm understanding, I don't, you said you used a lot of text. So you're telling me that people in Wyoming preferred to get their information in print format uh, that, that was very useful for them, which is interesting given the 21st century meme universe we seem to find ourselves stuck in. It's And it's like one of those things where it just doesn't seem like it's transposable as much, you know, because okay. I know that for um, Grable's memes, for the most part, 
popped off, but it was still those text heavy memes versus like a very like image heavy, um, like um, AOC's um, graphic design, like campaign that I don't think would have like meshed as well in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Wouldn't have flown in Wyoming. Yana, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I think it was also interesting that like we steered away from the cowboy thing and leaned into. So our so the logo was an antelope rather than, you know, the cowboy. And I think, you know, for me and that decision actually predated Donatella coming onto the campaign. So you, you sort of inherited that part of it. But I think that choice originally graphically was really about like wanting to invoke something that was a little more about the wilds and a little more about like, like sort of, you know, I mean, I was a climate candidate. And so, you know, not leaning into the like, you know, hyper independence thing that I think is sort of promoting all of the problems that are leading to climate disruption in the country and like leaning a little more into like, we're actually going to like connect with Uh, and hold up an animal that is a herd animal and is not a like, you know, individualistic kind of thing, but is also very iconically Western for the United States. So I think there was that choice, but that was when you inherited, (laughs) you just got to deal with my fascination with antelope. (laughs) Which ended up working out really great as a logo. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Beautiful. Uh, Awesome. I found the I found the antelope a good selection because as conservative as Wyoming is, we love our minerals. You know, can't get without them. Got to have our coal. Got to have that oil. Got to make California sell it. But the other part of Wyoming, even in this really conservative state, has a strong sense of conservation. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of hunters, fishers, outdoor enthusiasts um, in Wyoming that want to see things like migration. Uh, routes for antelope preserved, mm-hmm. uh, new uh, interstate designs and highway designs so that we're not taking out our antelope with cars. And so I, I see how that would definitely mesh very well with a Wyoming ethos mm-hmm. and, and get you away from that whole cowboy up ethos uh, and, and, and lean back to a conservatism there. I'm having a question about some primal decisions you would have had to make as you were beginning your campaign. And one was about what was the process like of learning how much money would need to be involved Mm. in a campaign for a federal seat? And how did you make decisions (laughs) considering how that money would come about? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I was um, advised by somebody that you need at least a million dollars to win a federal seat in Wyoming, which is a very small number for a federal race in almost any other state. It is a lot more than what we ended up raising and a lot more than what my, you know, my main opponents in the primary ended up raising as well. I think, I think that her campaign ended up raising like close to $80,000. And I think we, we read about like 46 or something. Um, so you know, so there was all of that. It was kind of like what I was told I was going to need to win. And, you know, you have to remember that when I made the decision to run, the strongest speculation was that Liz Cheney was going to run for this seat and which didn't end up happening to things of the alumnus instead. But it was like, you know, the Cheneys have so much money that there was pretty much no way that we were going to be able to compete um, on a dollar basis. And I think we would have done a lot better if we had raised three to five times as much money as we did. I mean, we certainly would have ended up with more votes and been able to do a lot more um, of the stuff that I think Marav had a little bit of an advantage for with being able to do like the auto texting stuff and, you know, just a whole bunch of stuff that our campaign couldn't afford to do. And so, uh, 
Yeah. So, so I think for me, it was always like, we knew that this was a long shot to actually have me end up in DC. I'm really proud to say that everybody who worked on this campaign are from Wyoming, live in Wyoming, have been here for a long time for the most part, except for Glenn, who's a graduate student at the university. But it's like, yeah, so he didn't come here to work on a political campaign. He came here because of, you know, great Wyoming public education opportunities And so, you know, so we just ended up having to have things be much more grassroots and, you know, much more homegrown. And I actually feel like that was a better match for our campaign anyway. And yeah, I would have loved to have had a million dollars to work with on this campaign. That would have been great. So did you find yourself running into that? Well, how could you know anything about Wyoming if you're only been here for what, five years at the time when you decided to run? I mean, yeah, everybody gets that. And the thing is, though, that like, half of the adults who live in this state, half of the voters were not born in Wyoming. So it's like, the, you know, there was that thing of like, okay, so do all of those people who have chosen to come here not deserve representation? Is that actually what's kind of embedded in that? And, you know, and I really think, I mean, I think it's fascinating that, you know, so one of the reasons why I was glad that Dee was available to do this is that like, she actually is from here. And so I'd love to get your take on this particular question but but it's like yes and everybody gets that and I kept getting the go back to California and it's like who the hell wants to live in California like really like so it was interesting to me as like a midwesterner and somebody who is very much a product of rural America like I feel like I actually grew up in spaces very like Wyoming in some significant ways and you know and then we had somebody you know who was also running as a as a democrat for the US house seat who like literally had never been to Wyoming when she started her campaign, because that's not actually a legal requirement. And I find that really disturbing and frustrating. Um, but, but Dee, what, what do you think of all that stuff being from around here? <laughs> like to even like, and I would do this in comments too. I'm a fourth generation Wyomingite. My grandmother came, my great, great grandmother came here and colonized. Like there was a farm on Crowheart, you know? So I live on, first off, we all live on native land. You know, this isn't like, you know, we were here for generations and generations, especially the people who have like the big farms and ranchers who often are the most upset about the idea that like people from California are coming in. And what's really fascinating about that is that we would have that kind of conversation, like all of you young folk are coming here from California or all you liberals, but the other side of that is I've heard my entire life that one of the biggest exports in Wyoming is our young people because we don't stay because even as we like go to college here and get told that we should go to college here because it's all paid for we as soon as we're out we still get pushed out because we then aren't seen as Wyoming people because we'd like the idea like most Wyomingites like the idea of like conservativeness and like cowboying up so much so that we are expelling on exiling like our younger more liberal and progressive people like I've seen it And I've heard multiple people and I would love to have some statistics on it of the idea that like people like me leave Wyoming because we can't stay here because we're told that we don't belong and we don't exist here. Um, And I remember a very interesting story. So I did go to UW and I got my BFA and um, I was in sculpture and I had to like play a part for a board of trustee member. And I remember very clearly had him having a conversation with me about the fact that uh he thought my art was cool but because it wasn't cowboys and indians which by the way is overtly racist Mm -hmm. uh bronze statuettes it didn't matter and it wasn't very wyoming even though i've grown up here 
I haven't really left here. I was born in Laramie. I lived in Cheyenne. And yet the art that I was making wasn't seen as Wyomingite and Wyoming. And so I think a lot of that like conversation about like, well, you don't live here is a really just like looking at like this ideal of what can like radical conservative Wyoming people like see and want to aspire to. And then you see it propagate through our graphics, through our art, through what is like promoted and like granted like money and what is not granted money, especially like artistically. And so I think that's something that we had to like grapple with a lot. And me as like an artist and a queer artist, it was also something to grapple a lot with um, trying to get a socialist to get, you know, a federal seat in a state where normally would exile me and like tell me that I'm from California, even though like I am from here. Mm-hmm. I think that was a big part of like the most compelling conversations that I had with people when I was out and about having, you know, before we stopped being able to be out and about, but um, with people was how much there were people in the state who have been here their whole lives or for many years, like, you know, like Antifa, like you were saying, like Matt's been here for 21 years. And it's like, he's really, he's, he is a product of Wyoming in some significant ways at this point. And how many people felt seen and acknowledged by our campaign um, because I was talking directly to young people and directly to progressives and socialists and directly to um, folks with disabilities who are often like really, really ignored in Wyoming politics and queer folks who are like really ignored and even vilified in Wyoming politics. And that a lot of my goal was like, making it clear to all of those folks that, hey, you have a right to take up space in Wyoming politics. And I'm going to plant that flag and hope that then other people feel empowered by that and feel like they're able to plant similar flags in the future. I mean, we, we talked a lot about this idea of like opening up, you know, the Overton window of like, what is okay to talk about in Wyoming politics? And to me, there was that, there was the content of that, but then there was also the process of that as which is who is allowed to talk in Wyoming politics. And I, you know, I sort of made the commitment that if I was going to run, I was going to be as open about who I am and I was going to be as fierce about claiming space for all of those different populations in the state that I think have traditionally been like really marginalized. So that, I mean, that was a big part of it. And that quilt um, graphic that, uh, that Dee was talking about, that was what that was about is like, you know, ending that sort of silencing of people in the state. And that was the graphic that we put out that I think, you know, got the, you know, the most traction both on like left Twitter, there was a lot of action with it and also, you know, within Wyoming. And, and that was really encouraging to me. I'm sorry, which graphic was that? So, so it was like, it was like acknowledging the different types of people who still vote in Wyoming and live in Wyoming. And so it was like, um, it had different colored quilt like shapes. And then it had like, I forgot what the hashtags were like. And the erasure was the hashtag. So, so, and the erasure of like, um, black voters in Wyoming of native and indigenous voters in Wyoming of people with disabilities and like things like that and so each one had their own quilt because it's a part of our community I mean this has also been like a large topic that I've been kind of like circling around is like the idea that you know these people don't usually are seen as like part of our Wyoming political like scape but they're prominent forever like we have a large disability population we have a large indigenous population we have a large very like 
in the like Wyoming roots black population that people just conveniently forget about, even though there've been people who have generations here. And so I think there was a lot of like that graphic and that's the one that went semi-viral on Twitter. And that was the one that was kind of still kind of having that conversation of like, who are we suppressing when we have these Wyoming political top like conversations? And like me personally, is also one of those things that even though um, I'm white from Wyoming, I didn't necessarily feel like because I didn't fit into the conservative Christian like stereotype that I couldn't like talk about or run for office in a way that I helped Yana run her campaign. Donatella, actually, I want to focus in on something you said and affirm uh, your idea that, uh, gee, this isn't Wyoming art, so we don't care. I, I seem to recall, I don't know, you've been to Laramie, obviously, you, were, uh, you, you knew everything, Laramie, and uh, they were putting a new sculpture out in front of the courthouse. Uh, they had the deer jumping out in the four different directions, and then there was a letter to the editor fiercely advocating that this is not Wyoming art. And if you've seen that sculpture, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It's the one that literally shows how windy it is in Laramie. I mean, it's, it's, it's the tree with the birdhouse, with everything, just like, holy crap, this is windy, you know. And looking at that, I, I just, it just reminded me of what you were saying. So I wanted to affirm that you're not the only one that's suffering from that, uh, you know, kind of analysis. But also, that was uniquely Wyoming in my estimation. I mean, I live out here on the prairie where it's 85 mile an hour winds, not all that infrequently. So uh, I just wanted to affirm that. And uh, have you seen that sculpture? And if so, what do you think about it? Is it not the epitome of wind in Wyoming and Laramie? So this is like part of, so this is a big thing for me because I actually took a public arts class um, and we talked about it and I actually met the artist who made that sculpture and we had like a very long conversation about it in my class and you know one of the things is, is that he's from Laramie he's a longtime local artist he did the proposal everyone thought it was great and like the idea of like this editor thinking that this wasn't Wyoming just because it was poppy colors and a little bit abstract was ridiculous because he did and we went and we like actually went and talked to him with the sculpture like in front of us and like the things was like the trucking industry that is huge in Wyoming is a part of that the history of like historical like women with the shoes and like how like uh, this community was built on people of all variety of walks of life and specifically women and so that's where the heels come from in this like building and then like the different houses of like the homesteaders and like this sculpture encompassed like what Wyoming is in like a contemporary context and I found it incredibly frustrating that that kind of dialogue was so badly taken as an editorial and then like taken as like not Wyoming art um, and I think it just kind of shows that we are stuck in this weird literal representational bronze statue that is kind of part of the course for like American art in general, but specifically people who really kept and stuck to the idea of manifest destiny and representational art as like the one way to describe like specifically like Western thought through art. And so um, it's, it's a reaffirming that essentially, yeah, that, you know, even though this is very much a Wyoming piece of art from a local artist who spent his entire career sculpting stuff for Wyoming, that it wasn't seen as it because it didn't have a cowboy hat on it. And I think that's a real disappointment for Wyoming as a whole through our art because we could do so much better with the kind of work that we have. 
And I think the thing that ties a whole bunch of the stuff together for me is that, so there is this need to hang on to power and hang on to a sort of like normative perception of what Wyoming is supposed to be all about. And it ties together the arts and politics and our economic system and a whole bunch of other stuff. And to me, it's like, this is like white supremacy and patriarchy and the fossil fuel industry desperately clinging to Wyoming is one dimensional because that one dimension has served keeping power locked in for a certain group of people. And those people are very good at running people out of state, you know, like young people, the way that Dee has been talking about. I mean, I'm going to be leaving soon. Um, Carl Beach is talking about leaving. I mean, a whole bunch of people who were willing to show up and really be in service in this state are ending up leaving because there's this one dimensionality that can be really hard to break through. And I sort of knew that when I decided that I was going to run was that I'm going to be talking about stuff that like you're not supposed to talk about. And that part of the point was to start breaking up the fabric of that not allowed to talk about a thing. But I just see all of this as being like, you know, like culturally and economically the power base in this state needs to hang on to this one dimensionality of Wyoming. And it's so completely not true. Like when you're actually out there talking to people, like the state is so rich, like culturally and, and spiritually and socially. And, um, you know, and so we made our attempt to do like a little, you know, just like a 14 month blitz of like, this is not all there is to Wyoming. And I feel really good about that part of it. As far as I know, I was the only one using the S word um, in an open way. But, you know, I, I did a number of events where I invited other candidates to come and to be in dialogue with me. And both Carl Beach and Lynette Grable were willing to show up for that. Uh, Jackie Grimes was, you know, one of the people who showed up for that conversation. Um, and so I, I did feel like there was some real kinship and um, Lynn Huskinson would be the other person that was actively running who I felt that kind of like strong uh, kinship with and that we were sort of openly owning our connection with each other. Um, and so, so I do feel like there were other pockets. And as far as I know, I was the only one who was willing to go to the level of saying like, I am actually a socialist in a really open way. Um, but I do feel like there is a lot of overlap. And one of the things that was really um, surprising and encouraging for me is that I took a very socialist agenda into the Democratic Party uh, during the campaign. And so both at our like our county convention and then at the state convention, I got worker ownership into the state platform and, you know, public banks into the state platform and and so there was a way that I think um, in a weird sort of way, like me just owning the word made it possible to at times have conversations where that word didn't need to be in there and where we could have a more clean conversation about like, hey, what about this policy? Like, let's actually talk about the content of what a more socialist economy would look like and you know, those proposals passed with flying colors at the state convention. Uh, and I don't think that means that like the Democrats are now socialists, but I do think that there's a way that there is a sensibility and a humanity to actual socialist policies that I, we were able to get some, some legs and get some actual movement on in the state. And so I'm hoping that those 
platform pieces don't get taken out, you know, the next time that they do uh, the platform revisions. But I do feel like I actually ended up with a very positive relationship with the formal leadership of the state Democratic Party. And in some ways, the typically shady relationship with a bunch of liberals in the state who, you know, were, I think, afraid of what I was bringing and afraid of the fact that I was just so openly progressive. And so I think I'd give sort of like mixed review to the like state party with this, but it wasn't because of the official state leadership. I mean, I think Joe Barbudo was really supportive and, you know, and he couldn't endorse anybody. And I don't know if he would have endorsed me if it came down to it, but, um, but Joe was absolutely very supportive. And I think the same thing is true with the state. Um, You know, the state staff were terrific and I never felt like there was any weirdness there. And so I do feel like there were some really good, coalition moments. The Sunrise Movement um, for this part of the state also endorsed me. And I felt really supported by like the youth climate activists in the state were incredibly supportive. Um, So yes. And there were limits to like how far people were willing to take it publicly. In that vein, I had a question regarding, I guess, the state of the Democratic Party in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. In some of the debates that I saw you in, an impression I got was that the Democratic Party is kind of a catch-all for candidates who didn't feel like they'd be able to get ahead in the GOP hegemony in the state. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like there was an extremely wide variety of of ideas that were being thrown around in the primary. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just a me fallaciously thinking that the some of the like the small fringe candidates were being put on the same platform as mm-hmm. you and I guess the neoliberal candidates who have the most support from the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, I, I do think that so the debate where that had the most of us there was the um, the uh, public TV station uh, did a debate that actually got all six of us on stage together. And that was the only time that all six of us were together. And, um, and yeah, so like, you know, Ken Kasner and Rex Wild and Nathan and Marav and I, like, we're really different people and have really different politics. And, um, you know, and Ken was even saying things like, I'm not even a Democrat, I'm really an independent and like, I shouldn't even be running as a Democrat. And it's like, okay, whatever, Ken. Um, and so I think there were, um, there were ways that there were people who were much more conservative than the mainline Democratic Party. And then there was me who's, you know, much more progressive and radical than the Democratic Party in general. And we were on the stage together. And I think there's something really positive about that, actually. And it's been interesting watching the two state parties and how they've sort of responded to divisiveness in politics. And I really see the Wyoming Republican Party as kind of uh, imploding right now and sort of like eating itself. And I think the state Democratic Party has actually done a much better job of making the tent bigger instead of smaller and not sort of like cracking down on folks. And, you know, I ended up getting a bunch of pressure, you know, after Bernie had dropped out and it became apparent that Biden was going to be the nominee. I got a lot of pressure from um, mostly from other candidates to endorse 
Biden. And I was just like, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, and had a conversation with um, folks in the state leadership of the party. And they were like, we don't need you to do that. Like, that's not coming from us. And, and I felt like that was really good leadership on their part. And, um, and so, you know, I feel like there's a way that the state democratic party under the current leadership has the potential to actually become more of an umbrella group and that that is partly going to include having space for more leftists within the Democratic Party. And so my hope is that I'm not the last open leftist who really like, (laughs) you know, plants a flag and like works on pulling the party to the left. I mean, I think there are some really great people active in the state who think that electoral politics are relevant. That's not true of all leftists, but there, I think there are some folks in the state who do think that. And, and I think they're trying to decide what relationship they want to have with the state democratic party. And so I would just, you know, encourage any of those folks listening to draw a distinction between what's coming from the leadership and what's coming from like basically scared neoliberal boomers who still have influence in the state. And I'm like, just fucking ignore those folks. Like, like they're not where the democratic party needs to be going. And like, don't give them more power by like going, ah, I hate the Democrats. It's like, actually, I think the democratic party in the state has done a pretty good job in this last cycle of actually getting more expansive rather than contracting. Can we ask D how the democratic party in the state is going and where it needs to go, particularly for, uh, young people who do want to stay here? So um, as someone, so like, I think, uh, I think this last cycle, one of the things is, is that 100% we agree over the years, the Democratic Party has been the catch-all for like anything that wasn't a very tight-knit part of the conservative Wyoming ideal, which is why um, there was a whole imploding of like calling Liz Cheney a rhino after that whole stuff. But um, there was some conscious shift that happened because I started going to Democratic Party meetings at the Lamy County Democratic Party um, fairly consistently. And there was a definite shift of like trying to be more inclusive and like adding to like trying to use that like, well, we have this umbrella, let's actually like use it to our advantage and try to expand as much as possible. And I think there has been like a more conscious shift, especially with some of the leadership throughout different counties that are very much pushing for a more progressive or at least more inclusive dialogue because they can't figure out how they weren't able to do anything else like it traditional that traditional kind of like corporate democratic party doesn't really fit in Wyoming because none of us really have money for that (laughs) and so we still have that there but there was more of like that push for like in being that more inclusive like what can we do with our catch-all to make it more where we can like either grow or like actually get more like blue seats in office in Wyoming so I think that's like not to like go off on a little bit of a tangent, but I have seen a little bit more of that cycle that like shift and definitely a little bit more push of like trying to get more young people to either stay or at least be involved in politics where usually we're pretty quickly pushed out of like any kind of dialogue. And I think the missing piece that is still missing, and I was the only one who was doing this really, is talking about working class power. I mean, what the Democrats still lack is a power analysis that at all reflects reality in terms of 
everyday circumstances that people are living with on the ground. And so that would be the piece like, so I'm, I'm encouraging people to like not give up in the democratic party in the state, but I also want to encourage the democratic party to not give up on people. And I think that without some kind of real power analysis, and it was so obvious a couple of times in the debates that like, you know, I was pushing a power analysis and like everybody else was kind of like, I have my pet thing that I'm going to talk about at every debate. And I'm like, what's your analysis of like why we are where we're at? And that that is monumentally missing, I think, from the Democratic Party still in the state and at the federal level, I think it's missing. And so, you know, you've got people like Bernie and AOC and Rashida Tlaib, who is my favorite of the whole bunch, and Cori Bush, who is quickly becoming another one of my favorites. And, you know, these are people who are talking about power. And if you look at that, I mean, other than Bernie, it's almost all women of color who are doing that. And, you know, I, Wyoming's not going to be able to wait for women of color to save us. I mean, you know, bless Lynette Grable and like, I hope she stays in politics and I think she's fabulous. And like, we're like white people, white working class people in Wyoming are going to have to like get their shit together and actually start talking about power analysis in our politics if we are going to actually have the kind of shift that we really need in this state. And I think that would keep young people in the state a lot more if they actually heard that coming out of politicians' mouths more. And I think it would certainly keep, you know, queer folks from, you know, feeling like they don't have anywhere to go. And my hope is that it's going to be done in a multiracial organizing way, you know, so that it is also a place where our indigenous and Latinx and black and, you know, actually there's a big like Thai population in the state as well. And, you know, so there's a whole bunch of people that I think need us to be talking about power. Wow. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, we're down to about 15 minutes left this morning and I want to get uh, a little local, uh, Last year was crazy. Uh, we had a pandemic. We also had massive nationwide protests against racial injustice, even here in Laramie. Um, talk about, and then there's this thing in Albany County, which Laramie is located with the sheriff and a sheriff's deputy that, uh, you know, I don't want to get into all the details, but, you know, there was an inappropriate use of force and somebody was murdered by being shot in the back. And, uh, and yeah, and he's still on the sheriff's, uh, you know, staffs, but th that's not the point. So as a, as a socialist, as a Democrat, as a candidate, how did this environment impact your ability to campaign? And what did you do uh, during that summer of, I, I don't know what to call it, uh, catastrophe, because uh, it was just one massive thing after another and so how how does one do that you know mm -hmm. how do you campaign in that kind of a situation and what was your response as a as a campaign I think I have an idea to both of those disasters that that intersection of the health crisis and the the racial injustice in our country yeah. Well, I mean, I had been one of the founding members of ACOP, which was the organization that started in the aftermath of um, Robbie Ramirez's 
murder at the hands of Derek Colling. And so that was actually in some ways like my first real foray into organizing work. I mean, I had done a couple of things here and there, but that was really the first time that it was like, there's a campaign here that I'm going to throw myself into. And so, and I ended up getting out of that in order to make space in my life to be, you know, running for office. And so I was um, very excited to see the, um, you know, the protests happening in Laramie and really impressed and, um, and I guess inspired by the leadership of like young people of color in town, like getting out there in the streets and that there were so many people who, you know, showed up at least some for those protests and a bunch of us who showed up, you know, really consistently for those, including, you know, a couple folks from here, you know, who are part of Solidarity Collective who were like in the streets almost every day. And, um, and I was not able to do that, but I was in the streets and I was, you know, willing to you know, say on the campaign shell, hey, I'm in the streets, where are you? Like, where are you on these topics? Because I know where I am and that is with the people protesting against um, police violence and militarized violence period in the United States. Um, and here's our local example of it. And like, here's these global examples of it. And so, you know, I was talking anti-militarization on the campaign trail, which was the you know, one of the appropriate levels, I mean, most policing stuff is not regulated at the federal level. We just saw the House pass a bill that looks like it's headed in the right directions. But a lot of, um, you know, a lot of those regulations aren't actually federal business, they're local business. And so the parts of it that I was sort of taking and applying to what I was doing were was talking about, you know, we live in a culture that solves problems with violence. And that's true with the police. It's true with domestic violence. It's true with suicide, which we have a horrible problem with in Wyoming. And so my, one of my approaches to that topic on the campaign trail was connecting those dots between like the cultural frameworks and the economic frameworks that pin in police violence and pin in the United States being like the world's bully basically. And talking about that stuff in like really frank terms. And, and I know that that was impactful. I actually had a couple of people who, you know, switched from being re registered as Republicans to Democrats to vote for me because I was the only one who was really talking in serious terms, not just bitching, but also saying like, and here's the policies that we could be doing differently and actually like making it, you know, not just protest, which I think some people are like, yeah, you're just in the streets yelling and you're not really proposing anything. And I'm like, okay, here's what I'm proposing. And I know that that was impactful on, you know, some people in terms of their voting decisions. Um, you know, and in terms of COVID, you know, I was the only candidate who was talking about Medicare for all from day one. And we watched some of the other candidates kind of the dance around it and not quite know what to do with that. And and watched other people like move to the left over the course of COVID. And I don't think that would have happened had the pandemic not hit. I don't think like, you know, me just being, you know, the radical way far left would have pulled people as much as I think that pulling happened because I had planted a flag and there was then this really compelling and horrifying thing that was happening around us where it was like, oh yeah, actually more people are getting it that we'd be in a really different place nationally if we had had Medicare for all at the beginning. And so, so I think those circumstances, um, you know, it was also good because I didn't have to drive all over the state for the second half of the campaign. And 
I do pretty good online with, you know, communications. And that was not true for some of the other candidates. So I think like in a warped sort of way, I think it actually helped me in the campaign to do better because because uh, I was more flexible with how I can communicate. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a bunch more to it, but I think those are sort of the highlights of what I did with those two things. Yeah, a question that we might have time to fully cover before we have to wrap up. Um, what was a bigger challenge, do you think, in your campaign between being ignored versus being attacked in a political sense? Oh, that's interesting. Um, publicly, I don't know that either one of those were actually that big. I mean, I think that there was, I think that there was some behind the scenes undermining that was happening that was probably more frustrating than anything else. Honestly, I think that my partner took the brunt of the attacks a little bit more than I did. And I think that goes back to that kind of one dimensionality. And there's this conceptualization about like masculinity and like having, having your wife be the one who's running for office. And so I think, I think Matt got hit really hard a few times with um, some pretty nasty attacks. And, um, and I have the kind of personality where things roll off me a little bit where I'm like, okay, whatever, I'm just going to like keep doing my thing over here. Um, I was impressed with a few of the press outlets in the state where I feel like we saw a shift in how socialism was being talked about over the course of the campaign. It was actually interesting because at one point I was in the studio in Rock Springs getting interviewed by um, a couple folks in the press. And I actually kind of like turned the tables on them for a minute and was like, what are you seeing in terms of how this word is being talked about? And, and they were like, no, we definitely think it's being talked about differently now than it was eight months ago when you started this. And so I think the press started out having maybe kind of a, an additional mention in their articles. And I was like the Laramie socialist. And that was sort of all that was said about me in articles at the beginning. And by the end, I feel like there was a lot more interest in like, okay, what is this public thinking thing? And, you know, and I think that people got in the press got more comfortable actually you know, talking about some of the stuff that I was talking about. And um, yeah, and so I don't know that it was actually either one of those that hit me so much as I was seeing it hit people that I really love. And that part was really hard. I think it's, it's interesting because I think had I started this campaign, maybe when I was in high school, I would have gotten a lot more backlash uh, just because of the circles that I ended up being in. And I was actually homeschooled for 18 years of my life. Um, and so like, I think... There was probably a lot of backlash in like those circles but as far as like the circles that I was like talking to and trying to get through I think they've been so tired of giving getting like poverty wages and like the people who you know I end up encircling with are people who are like working in warehouses or in like jobs that just don't have so I think the idea of socialism is way more appealing to them because capitalism has been doing them so wrong for so long and so I think there's like that for me it was on like on a personal scale, that's where it was. And on a graphical scale, like trying to get and keep the algorithm pointed towards more of the people who were like on the fence. And it would be difficult if we had enough people say really horrible things, then more of those people would show up. And so trying to like balance, like how do we get more of those people who are on the middle of the road versus the people who are just, you know, trolling because they had nothing else to do was a little bit of like a difficulty, like graphically, like through the algorithm and trying to kind of like 
keep steering at more leftists or even just like in groups of people who are not usually political, you know, and trying to get their feeds to get our stuff. And I think that was a really interesting, like, way to try to like, what kind of graphics can we do? What kind of information do we put out consciously to make sure that we're getting to the people who actually are gonna vote for us and be more comfortable with socialism once they know that like workers' rights is attached to socialism. And I think that was kind of like, mm -hmm. trying to get that was I think a challenge, um, but a good challenge is was trying to like figure out how to continue to contribute to like the graphical side of that. And then personally, I think people who are in my circles were very excited. They wanted, they have people in like my age group and a little bit older and a little bit younger are very, very tired of living here in a state that doesn't listen or validate any kind of experience other than a rich cowboy. A lot of socialists don't think that we should run for office because the entire electoral system is a reflection of deep capitalist hierarchy and injustice. We're validating things. We should be. Um, building revolution and doing direct action and mutual aid and all of those other things. Uh, and then there are folks who are very electoralist, um, including a lot of, you know, sort of, you might call the, the right flank of DSA, you know, that is very much about let's, let's make an electoral system where the squad is the, you know, new face of the Democratic Party and let's really concentrate on elections how did you, Yana, handle that dichotomy? I think everybody's right. I mean, I, I think that there are ways that the electoral system is incredibly problematic and, um, and it would be certainly less problematic if the squad was like the center of the Democratic Party instead of the far left of the Democratic Party, um, where I think most of them are not even that radical um, so, so I think that the, that the criticisms of electoralism are spot on and they make sense to me. And it made sense for me to run partly because the Overton window in Wyoming has been so narrow and that it wasn't going to take um, superpowers to like open that window up by just like showing up and um, and so that felt worth it. But I mean, my encouragement to people is like, find the niche that you are comfortable in and like fully go for it. I mean, I have like a revolutionary heart in many ways. And so I also feel really connected to that part of the left. And I think that we don't know which one of those is ultimately going to make the bigger impact. And so I'm like, find your niche and the place that you're comfortable and the place that makes sense to your brain and makes sense to your skill sets and lean fully into that. But like, let's not beat the hell out of each other for making different choices about that. You know, I mean, I've, I've had one foot in each of those worlds now. And, and I think that there is a lot of merit in both of them. And, um, and I don't think we get to know who's right about that until 300 years from now when we're all dead. And so you know, I'm interested in continuing to pursue both of these kinds of fronts in terms of my own activism. And I feel like I have deep and sincere comrades in like sort of uh, one foot in each of those worlds, I guess. The almost 5,000 people in Wyoming voted for Yana 
And those people, due to your efforts and Yana's efforts and others, could not have not known, had to have known what they were voting for, had to have known that they were voting for a, a, a pretty far left candidate. That's a lot of votes. Why do you, how would you explain that so many people voted for Yana? I think, and I think it's like a, a variety of things, like a, a large things, especially during like the fact that we had COVID and then the Black Lives Matter protests. And I think there is a lot to say about the idea that in this election cycle, and we can see this through a lot of the other um, the races, especially in our country, is that people had the time to actually like take some time to be like, okay, so why is this happening? Because we were stuck at home. And I think that was also a big thing. But I also think in general for, you know, the 5,000 votes, you know, it looked like, and it felt like, and I think it was something that like a beacon of hope that normally wouldn't be. I mean, usually it's the conversation as well. I've, I'm registered as R, so I have more choices. I'm registered as R because, you know, nothing really counts. And I think the more like the very upfront, like I want to help you and your family and your community through, you know, the acts of the fact that, you know, there was acknowledgement that coal miners were losing, going to lose their jobs and CEOs were just bankrupting so that they can cash out on their, on their businesses, you know, and there was like that push of acknowledgement, like, yeah, that's going to happen, but here's why I'm trying to help you anyway, even though, you know, I don't, I want more renewable energy. And I think that frankness cause a lot of people to be like, okay, like, I think, you know, as a Wyoming, I, in my values, I think a good solid, like straightforward honesty is a moral that Wyoming people have. And I think Yana really encapsulate that in a way that gave people to be like, okay, she's not, you know, she wants to give me a better life than I'm experiencing right now, which is watching bankruptcy and rural poverty and poverty wages. Uh, hey, everybody, we're back to talk a little bit about Wyoming politics. And we have our good friend from Laramie, Rihanna, with us. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. How are you? I think we're doing well. What sorts of things are you doing with your time these days? And uh, anything uh, interesting? Um, mostly school and work, you know, the grind of nonstop capitalism. Um, no, I am finishing up my undergrad for uh, history and starting that look into grad school now. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, we, uh, you know, try to to bring in as many uh, people and important voices from the community, and you've certainly been one of those. So it's great to to have you on the on the podcast. I think one of the things I was looking at was the closing of the feed grounds. Um, and passing the closure power from the uh, Wyoming Game and Fish over to the governor. Mm -hmm. um, and looking through that article, I all, all, all this disease that are uh, that faces the spirits of Mother Earth, like all of this overconsumption, all of this crap has really like it just always gets under my skin it's and just I, it was just tinkering with the machine to you to pass yeah the jurisdiction from from one to another and the you know the kind of argument is that um uh having these these agencies having more independence to act will somehow make them act better 
with yeah. respect to uh, the earth and, and management. And I mean, you can talk about individual, you know, cases or individual political struggles, but uh, it, you're still talking about just really managerialism with the with yep. the uh, with the natural the natural environment. So it sounds like you're saying that the actual person who's you know has their hands on the levers of power is irrelevant as yep. long as that person is committed to to that worldview. Exactly. Exactly. Auntie Fa, um, before you tell us what's uh, getting your goat these days, uh, can you remind us what people should do if they want to support this program? Well, if you're listening to us, you've already shown that you have excellent taste in your media sources. So you should go ahead and start paying for that. You can do that by joining patreon.com slash solidarity house. And for a mere starting rate of $5 a month, you can pay for independent media and opinion and cultural coverage here in Wyoming that you're just not going to get anywhere else. That means you need to go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity house and start making a monthly contribution of at least $5 a month. I've been listening to a lot of NPR pledge drives, so I've practiced that speech. That's This is like a, a commie NPR pledge drive. <laughs> I'm pleased, and this isn't Wyoming related, but for all you metalheads out there, Twisted Sister won their copyright infringement case against an Australian right-wing douchebag politician when they uh, plagiarized, we're not going to take it anymore. So yay, Twisted Sister, I've got my devil horns up. Right now, I, is Ocean there anything Andrew? at all interesting to say about Ocean Andrew uh, that we haven't? I mean, we haven't really, we have not done a deep dive <laughs> uh, into Ocean Andrew. But what do we, what do we know about this, uh, about this character, Rihanna? Do you, do you have anything come to mind? Not really. Like honestly, with him, I've just been avoiding like the plague because he's the, he's the fish, the fish hook guy. He's the fish truck. Is he really? Yeah. Yeah, I the fish and chips. That. Okay, well, that's good to know. I'm not aware of this story. <laughs> I am completely lost. Fish and chips guy? Well, the truck. He owns the, the, the truck. truck. Also, I think the only thing that he's good for is filming Ocean's 14, 15. Where the hell are we Ocean now? Ocean Andrew <laughs> 22. Yeah. That, something like that. I don't know. I want something like that to happen to him. I don't know what. Reading over his Ballotpedia stuff, um, he it's it's the same crap that he's just going on about, oh, liberty and, you know, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's a libertarian, basically. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As a, as a Republican, and um, doesn't he, that just mean he, he was that he against the weed he, and he get was, laid? He was he was repeatedly against um, all kinds of public health measures uh, over the last year for the pandemic. So he uh, came out, but the arguments that he was making were boilerplate libertarian arguments. It was yeah. as if he had just gone to you know libertarianism.org or whatever and just pulled lines from from that off and uh and you know when it when it got contentious he was just sort of like peace and love everybody yeah uh, we need to get the government out of our lives and eat more fish 
So I wanted to do a reading. I have to warn you about this first reading. This is really unpleasant business. I have to warn you all that this is really unpleasant business. And so you all are welcome, you know, uh, to just indicate by groaning when it particularly hurts. This is, but, uh, or you can also chime in, you know, with, if you have commentary, Uh, but this, so this first, both of these columns are from Cowboy State Daily, which is a a very far right uh, news, uh, local news, digital news source in the state. And there are some other things that we can talk about maybe on a future episode about who owns Cowboy State Daily and uh, where they get their money and you know the, how they're sort of they seem to be heavily funded. Uh, this is this guy. This is a contributing uh, columnist for Cowboy State Daily by the name of Rusty Rogers. <laughs> so Rusty. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we have a pseudonym club. Together, no jokes. <laughs> No trombone jokes allowed. Uh, but uh, the name of the uh, of the column is <laughs> "It's time to choose, comma, sick. Are we socialists or not?" The si- I added the sick, obviously, uh, to indicate that that it is as is. the 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 title of the column is "It's time to choose, comma, are we socialists or not?" Question um, mark. And many of us have already made that choice uh but uh i'm just gonna groan right here because my english teacher miss taylor would be very upset with that unnecessary comma it's so there's this just sort of leveling that's going on in the wyoming media but um but anyway rusty rogers guest columnist for cowboy state daily to those who watch closely or even just occasionally it's clear by now that the left is indeed trying to change america into a socialist country ah far so good (laughs) stop promise stop promising us a good time recent actions and inactions have removed all doubt to all but the least aware or the greatest deniers Um, why you might ask comma would any sane person try to destroy the most successful and freest nation to ever exist period what country is he referring to shouldn't there be a question mark at the end of that sentence i mean he started (laughs) there goddamn should be a question mark at the end of that sentence can't help you with that is the next thing he says my personal belief is extreme psychosis of some sort comma or runaway greed bottom line it is happening what all of us decide to do about it is so important i can't find the words period and then he ended his column because he was being honest and saying he couldn't find the word. no yeah exactly <laughs> I, wow is, is this guy a comedy writer some or? have some i have talked to believe we are at the beginning of the end as noted in the bible uh no there's no citation there but i discussed this before i discussed this before and 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 like then i'm not prepared to argue against the idea i firmly believe that god does not intend for us to just give it all up. He ordained this country and then placed us here to guide and protect true liberty. Placed us here 
yeah who's he describing so we, rihanna that yeah who is exactly us and um is god a colonizer like is is the god like the settler colonial i mean obviously in their standards yes. but like <laughs> yes god is it's is it or is it like the white horse prophecy or some yeah exactly like what what's going on here we white have salamanders been, well well <laughs> one thing is that one thing that's going on here he goes on to say is we have been singularly lazy and careless so now we have to buck up and perform our duty which i want to so i want to say like this is this is the most ridiculous shit that i've ever read in my life and it's in you know what's considered to be the uh the leading conservative news source in in the state of wyoming and and all of that said uh this is a call you know this is this is a dog whistle call for the three percenters and the other white militia basically that's what this is it's clearly that um and we have to buck up and perform our duty uh, because, he goes on, the left has a small army and it's very active. In fact, they have two armies, BLM and Antifa. And we have Antifa right here with us. Yeah. You're an army. <laughs> what the hell? How does it feel? I, you know. I like how he uh, capitalized Antifa. Like either he's trying to stress it because he's not allowed to use italics where he thinks it's an initialism. <laughs> they are killing people and trust me it's going to get worse um i just want to go on the record as saying i may have only killed people with my good looks but that's you. it i thank you for going on the record and saying that i think it's important to come clean with what you've done um and uh so they're killing people and trust me it's going to get worse um which is egregious, un, un, uh, egregious, unsighted, unsupported lie number one of about five in the piece. And it's going to get worse. And the corporations are going to bow to the greatest noise and threat. They don't want an angry customer base. So whatever the bullies want, they get a stunning indictment of capitalism, by Sounds the way. Like free market <laughs> yeah. To me. yeah. Yeah. Hey. yeah. Um, he, so anyway, it goes on and uh, about the about Georgia and Major League Baseball, uh, uh, you know, taking the uh, the All Star Game or whatever uh, out of of Georgia and into uh, Colorado. Uh, these those totally those young, totally non productive members of the armies of the left are not. The, hey, it sounds like we're pretty fucking productive. If yeah, we if we're killing people left Major League and right. Baseball. Yeah, and making baseball bow to our will. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, anyway, and you know he's not going to be a baseball fan anymore. Uh, and uh, it's pretty clear the move had nothing to do with election laws because the two states have nearly identical election laws. Uh, that's not true. But um, anyway, uh, uh, George gives in will be very very bad. We have got to start fighting back. It's time to declare who you are. America is supposed to be a meritocracy where you have the right to opportunity, but not the guarantee of success, which is a defense of capitalism. Um, and, and a load of horseshit. And well, but like, it sounds like Major League Baseball made a business decision. And so you shouldn't, you don't have, like the states don't have a guarantee of success. 
they can compete for these corporations by maybe not being terrible. Uh, according to that logic, I'm, not, I'm just saying according to, to sort of neoliberal uh, logic. Um, if you want to wear a mask and carry a club and pepper spray to intimidate and injure, like they did on January 6th in Washington, D.C., he didn't write that part. Um, uh, you need to be met with force and stopped. Not Okay, fragmented sentence alert for all of us. Oh, big groan there. <laughs> I mean, the grammar is... It's, it's inexcusable. Um, not killed unless absolutely necessary, comma. Uh, but justice needs to return to America in the form it was intended. How was it intended, Rihanna? Yeah, not <laughs> you're the you're the history person. Please educate us on on what was intended. Well, it depends on who you ask and what historical period. Because uh, I would say, you know, post um, 1492 and establishment of whatever the hell happened to this country. Usually, it's the white male landowner for justices, which intended. And then more recently, you know, we may be having discussions about reform, but we'll see. You need well, to stand uh, trial and if found guilty punished is, is just the next sentence that sort of added on to this paragraph. Um, so I'm not sure who the you is. I guess if you want to wear a mask and carry a club and pepper spray, you should be arrested and found guilty and punished. And, and the cognitive dissonance is more than I can bear. <laughs> I'm sorry, show's over. My head's going to blow up. It's like uh, yeah. scanners over here. <laughs> so there's more here, and I'm not going to, I'm going to spare you uh, reading it all verbatim. Um, but if someone claims you hurt their feelings and wants you to be silenced, tell them no. Tell them to grow up and act like an adult. Choose your own words. Let no one tell you what you can say or what you can think. Understand that you are not a racist or xenophobe the one accusing you comma is period the one accusing you comma is period is this guy a product of the wyoming public school system because no so, no okay. i want to speak up for the wyoming public school system. i, I, I want to say they can't be this bad at teaching grammar Suppose support pe support people like you who like you want their free country back. The truth is that America is no longer a free country. Uh, they want their country back, Rihanna. Yeah, I was about to say they they want it back. Yeah, um, I can I can sympathize with that. Like really, I can. I I would love to have. Um, I mean, not necessarily my country back. I'd love to have my land back. We could start with that at least, but. To them, you know, land and country is synonymous. So if a small group of paid anarchists. OK, so, you know, that's another thing. Like, first of all, there's a paragraph no break there. There's no least. proof that any of these people are paid. And second, yeah. if there are, I've got questions. Because Where's my money. Yeah, where, where is my money? I yeah. have not yet been paid. If but if a small group of paid anarchists can force a huge corporation to do their bidding, if they can dictate behavior and language to an entire country, if not, who what who? Yeah. 
<laughs> what, I, who, I what, to, who? <laughs> I, have I is it just because I've missed the past couple like Antifa meetings like is that what's going on I know yeah, I haven't while been you were reporting gone. my absences like no longer in good standing yeah <laughs> <laughs> my membership fee is a little overdue I, I admit I have not received my George Soros check <laughs> and he has my address <laughs> This is followed by two um, paragraphs about uh, coronavirus uh, and a bunch of unsupported uh, claims about it. Um, remember that we have, you know, folks in, in our, um, you know, in the Wyoming legislature who publicly are saying uh, that more people have died from the vaccine than have died from coronavirus, which, like, is not even... That doesn't even make sense. Also, but... I want to also add, he did not like specify coronavirus. He just said SARS-2. Uh, which... Oh, right. Well, yeah, he also says SARS. He also is talking about SARS-2. Yeah. Uh, and with, Which I think he is trying to specifically talk about the coronavirus, but he just says SARS-2, which is not not exactly or he's saying SARS-2 as well is a virus that uh, people are oh, lying about or something. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know yeah. what he's saying. <laughs> and so, and then this is great because he has just spent a couple of paragraphs saying that no one actually died or very few people actually died of the virus. And then he says the virus was used to make time and opportunity to ensure that Trump never returned to the White House. The millions of deaths worldwide were of little consequence to those who wanted that particular goal. Wait, <laughs> you just said there weren't millions of deaths. I don't Isn't know what that this, what we would call a double term. You just said there weren't millions of deaths. Yeah, it's a yeah. Well, in debate, you know, it's a double turn. Um, this is more than a double turn. This is a freaking literary rhetorical roundabout. Okay, it's <laughs> it's a performance. That's the thing. I, I think that if we just treat it as an ironic performance, yeah, absolutely. We don't know the future. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that, that's straight out of fucking Ed Wood. We don't know the future. It may be indeed the beginning of the tribulation. This I do know is it is not this I do know run on sentence. Yeah. Um, this I do know it is not going to be a walk in the park. If there ever was a period in the history of the United States, take careful note, Rihanna, if there was ever a period in the history of the United States that proved the wisdom of our founders and the need for the Second Amendment, it is now. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's See, just dog whistle bullshit. Oh, absolutely. And like, you want to, I love, I love when they play like, pretend know about of the founders intentions because i'm talking like you're talking ab about a bunch of guys who the majority of time of the time were not um sober and had purely <laughs> intended um you know this country built off democracy for the wealthy white landowner are you saying that the <laughs> Founders were all hopped, hopped up on snuff and alcohol when maybe. they were, when they were <laughs> creating these these founding documents. Just maybe, and you know, it's uh, 
not to say that like I could not find supporting evidence for that, but I will go on my own limb and say, yeah, they were not sober. So I believe it was called punch. And that's where we got the word from. Etymologically speaking, punch was what they drank. And basically everybody brought whatever booze they had and they put it in a bowl uh, with whatever else was available. And then they would drink. So like when I was in college. Yes, exactly. Essentially. I do have something somewhat serious to say about this. I think that it is really fucking irresponsible for Cowboy State Daily to both sides and level out this kind of thing where, and the game that they're playing is, well, you know, anybody can come on, you know, come come on our site and write a column if they want and we'll treat them we'll treat them like a columnist we'll treat them like a contributing uh a contributing writer a contributor you know and obviously like i don't think rusty rogers got paid to write this uh but that you know that then we'll give it our sort of stamp of legitimacy even as a conservative site that nearly every factual premise that is in this column is incorrect and there is this myth uh that is part of the trumpist kind of fascist myth of destroying public reason Uh, and that myth is that opinion writing has no evidentiary threshold that to have a column an opinion column in a newspaper is to have no evidentiary threshold and that's step one of, the, of what they're doing here, because then the reduction of all news to opinion is step two. And at that point, then it's all fake news. Nothing, is, nothing has to be supported. All I have to do is appeal to the lowest common denominator. And like I was about to mention, we're about to mention this piece by Rod Miller. And everybody knows that Rod Miller is, you know, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, is an established writer, an established contributing editor to several publications in Wyoming. And he has a column here too that has is the same, that has the same level of legitimacy as Rusty Rogers' column. And if I were Rod Miller, I would be insulted by that. That I'm that the the stuff that I'm doing, which is at least has a threshold for you know of professionalism about it, whether again whether you agree with it or not, uh, that they would just put this dog whistle bullshit fascist manifesto written by uh, someone that has no awareness uh, of writing. Um, alongside other columns i don't know there's something about that that offends my sensibilities and maybe i'm just being a snob but it pisses me off and the fact that it's also just dog whistle bullshit that pisses me off too you know what i have garnered from this conversation is i need to know if Grammarly offers a gift subscription that we can send Mr. Uh, Rogers. Mr. Uh, Mr. Rusty Rogers. Mr. Rusty Rogers or whatever the hell his name is, uh, because he desperately needs one. (laughs) And I mean, if I ever have to sit through something that grammatically poor again, I might just vomit. Uh, 
So I, I, I really am considering getting him a year subscription to Grammarly. And I think we should do that as a gift, as outreach to the other side, to the conservative half, that we would love to have a conversation with you. Please learn how to talk. It turns out that the Antifa was the real grammar Nazi all along. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad that you figured out a way for us to get out of that segment. Uh, well, well done, Derek. I want to say this about Rod Miller's column. I'm not going to read it word for word. The, the column is, let me find it. We need to get this right it is a column about police reform in Wyoming. It's very straight down the middle of kind of what the kind of stuff that Rod Miller uh, is known for in terms of writing. So Rod is a kind of icon to Wyoming, to liberal, to Wyoming liberals, not to anyone kind of, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated because a bunch of people that I work with um, that, are really progressive on a lot of issues are also sort of Rod fans. Rod also needs to trim his beard. It's just, I'm sorry, I call me prissy. I don't know, but um, it's just, it's a mess. His beard is really a mess. Um, and Rod, by the way, is welcome anytime on the show. The, the gist of the column comes from saying things like, you know, cops are our neighbors. This isn't about politics. We need to get this right because we're decent people and we're better than the rest of the country. And so there is this sort of what I call sort of Wyoming exceptionalism that you hear from people. It is often tied to this sort of centrist discourse. Does that make sense? I mean, are people kind yeah. of, are you, do you know what I'm, do you, are you, do you know the phenomenon of which I speak? Absolutely. I, um, it's hard to put it down sometimes, but like, it's not, you know, it definitely speaks to that. And it is, it is this like Wyoming exceptionalism of like, I don't know what, even at the end of the article, you know, um, I don't know if it's just because like, Hey, we can do it better. Cause we have you know, 500,000 people, which is a part of the column at the very end. It was like, you know, we may not, they may not be able to do this with 30, you know, 3,500 million Americans, but we can do it with uh, 5,000, 550,000 Wyomingites. Because we're a small town. Yeah, we're, we're that small, small rustic America. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's hearts are in the right place. Yeah. We don't have the problems that the rest of the country has. Uh, we don't have bigotry here. We don't have violence uh, against every conceivable minority here. Which, you know, we all know, it's just obsessively false. Like it, it and it's misleading to uh, the those of the general centrist public of the right-leaning people that uh, probably read Cowboy State Daily on the regular. Um, well, he's because, just read meat to them because they hate him. They hate yeah, him. It, yeah, exactly. Right. But I think for the people that do like Rod, though, and not, not that this is an attack, because <laughs> I also enjoy, you know, 
um, I, I've met Rod a few times. I enjoy him a lot, but like, it's just lying to people. It's denial of reality of what Wyoming is, and we need to accept our faults before we can tout this exceptionalist crap. This is important because for 20 years now, or you know, a little over 20 years now, this I think that we've had to struggle with this this kind of trope mm -hmm. because when Matthew Shepard was killed, there was this amazing mobilization of that was good activism and good mobilization around it. But that mobilization and that activism around it, you know, and the, and, you know, the, the sort of visual stimuli that it produced of the angels and, you know, all of these things, you know, going on in Laramie, um, that act, that real grassroots activism was appropriated by this myth that Wyoming is not an unfriendly place to sexual minorities or racial or ethnic minorities or poor yeah, like, people in general. Like I mean, I, that, that, that what happened at, on that, at that time in Laramie somehow redeemed the entire state, right? Yeah, and redeem, well, even like, because yes, it redeemed the entire state according to them, but like also on a microcosm level, like even Laramie itself has that, you know, we're redeemed because of that. I mean, and I grew up, I'm a transplant from Colorado, but I've been in Laramie for 12 years. I grew up in the school system here. I graduated high school here. I'm going to the university here. I've experienced the same crap that was happening 20 years ago, still happening today and happening throughout my whole childhood and teenage years. Um, as a uh, racial minority, as a sexual minority, as a gender minority, like uh, all that crap still happens and we are not, there's no exception in Wyoming just because, you know, of these lies of this myth that we are. I don't even think that Rod would deny that. I think what happens is that we often get, you know, some of our more forward thinking voices in the state often get swept up into that myth of exceptionalism yeah uh this sort of we're better than that and so i would like kind of gently suggest what if you know what if we change that political discourse at least enough to say let's begin by saying we're not better than that and and this is why and and for me the the conversations about police are a really, really good starting point for that discussion because this idea that cops are just our neighbors and that this is just about fixing a problem and getting rid of the few bad cops and that kind of thing, to me, it, what it really ignores, and I say this so much that I'm sure that my comrades here at Solidarity House are going to groan with this more than they did for Rusty, but cops are, it's really important that people understand that the cops are a political force, yeah. that they're not neutral arbiters that are, that have just been corrupted, that they're a political force and that their politics runs in the direction of brutality. And that's a right-wing direction and cops are right-wing folks. There are no, there are no large contingents of centrist or liberal cops. 
that are going to solve all these problems for us, nor are, is everyone going to come to the table in good faith and make a working group that's going to solve this for us if cops are involved in that because they are a right-wing force categorically. I think that's important. And if you doubt that, just look at the data. The, the data is everywhere on that question. And we've talked about it enough on the show that I can just say, look back to the several episodes that we've talked about with, you know, the, these, various, these various sort of, that have served as case studies uh, for the, the bias of cops in general in this question. And so we can use this kind of lofty language to talk about the social contract like Rod Miller does, but we have to understand that that's not like the space that we're working from, just as we have to understand that when, when minorities get hurt in this state, it's, it is a feature, not a bug of the state. Mm-hmm of Wyoming. Absolutely. And I mean, it kind of speaks back to when I used, when I was um, bigger in the political scene here, when I was running for school board and when I was doing petitioning work um, for the school district and stuff. And when I was speaking out um, a lot more than I do now, but you know, I've met with, I've come to the table with people and not necessarily in the the conversation with cops, although the conversation can be correlated. Um, I remember sitting down with um, Governor Mead and the superintendent, the state superintendent, uh, Jill Ballow, and uh, having a lovely conversation with them about transgender students and uh, the rights of transgender students to, um, you know, activities, facilities, and any other thing provided in the public school system that correlates with their uh, gender identities. And I felt really confident and positive walking out of that room. And the next day I looked and there was the article that Wyoming was joining back when they were, you know, all the states sued um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the government for um, the, uh, the federal uh, mandate on um, gender, uh, transgender students and, you know, regulating, uh, gender affirming facilities and activities. Um, and that article was saying, you know, Wyoming joins these States to sue the federal government. And I just, my hope was crushed immediately because I was young and bright eyed and thought that, you know, if you just sit down at the table with these people, then you can make actual change and have these heart like conversations. That's a, a tragic and like absolutely uh, paradigmatic story because yeah. uh, I've had I've had similar situations, you know, in my uh, younger activist days where we've met with elected officials or other folks and the outcome has been just a 180, you know, 180 yeah. degrees uh, different. And uh, and the reason for that is a real honest reason what they respond to is power. And exactly. so that's why you have to have movements. And that's why you have to have uh, multi, you know, like coalitions of people uh, and people willing to say an injury to one is an injury to all and kind of standing up for each other. And if we do, if that happens, then we will have police reform in Wyoming. 
we will have uh, account more accountability and less uh, homicidal police. Uh, we're we've made a slight difference just in in Laramie and Albany County. Uh, be, but would we have made that difference if all we did was sit down and talk together? No, we only are making that difference because we put our bodies out in the street. I don't know if you heard about this. One of those days we were out there, I uh, I got a really bad stomach pain and I marched through the whole two, I think two to three days afterwards, I finally went to the hospital. Like, yeah, you've had app- an uh, appendicitis for the past three days. And it wow. was like, you know, but I it was that action. It was that sacrifice. It was that community support and that community direct action. You know, we really put praxis to our words. So as we transition out, I want to say that this episode has been dedicated to Rihanna's appendix, (laughs) uh, which sacrificed itself in an act of solidarity with its comrades somewhere out there in the wherever biological waste goes to exactly did you just say comrades uh, no i didn't i, <laughs> no, I thought we were back to what's his nuggets uh, article again I, and I was losing my marbles uh, comrades okay never mind sorry <laughs> and on that note um because i have to go pick up my kid uh it is. Uh, it's been great having you, Rihanna. Um, will you come back and oh, do absolutely. more of this? Absolutely, I would be happy to.